We're gonna play a little rock and roll right now. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll music. Rock and roll. 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 Rock and roll is king. All right. Welcome rock to the Only Rock and Roll podcast. Um, why? Why do you call it that? Only rock and roll. Just because the song says it's only rock and roll. Do you not know the format by now? <laughs> I thought I told you to wait in the car. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm Don DiMuccio, and man, we got a good one this week. To the best of my knowledge, and I'm sure someone out there will correct me if I'm wrong, there's only about six people in this entire world who can say they played bass with John Lennon. Uh, Klaus Foreman, Tony Levin, uh, Gordon Edwards, I'd say Stu Sutcliffe counts, and of course, Paul McCartney, and our guest today. A member of the New York-based Elephant's Memory Band, Gary Van Syok. But first, who just couldn't wait his turn, had a push in front of everyone, back again for his fair share of abuse, longtime DJ at 94HJY, a guy who does know what he's doing behind the mic, which is a rare change of pace around here, the man with the golden voice, Pete Silva. How are you? Hi, Don. Please forgive me. No. That was my, that's, you know, kind of a jock crossover thing. We step all over each other because our egos are huge. huge, That's so huge. (laughs) Well, I feel honored then to be in that same category. How you doing, man? Great. You sound great. Can't wait for this interview. This is going to be amazing. Well, I got to give a disclaimer right up front. It was a little technical snafu, <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, in the mix, as they say. I could not get rid of a little delay on my voice, so I sound like I'm uh, at Sun Studios trying to imitate Elvis when I talk. Well, you know what? John Lennon, um, that album that uh, your guest played on, wasn't that a Phil Spector-produced album? He was there for like three days, which is basically yeah. what he always does. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to have plenty of delay. Just Tons. think of it this way. <laughs> your your interview will sound like it was produced by Phil Spector. <laughs> now, Pete, remind everybody about your tenure behind the mic. 29 years at 94HJY. Wow. So how do you like that? Yep. Yeah. Pretty cool. Just till this last January, iHeartMedia decided to have another bloodletting <laughs> and uh i myself charles um the troll and brian were let go but uh hey it was a great run and what are you gonna do right? what was your shift did you do graveyards you do morning? i did so i've done everything in 29 years you you name it uh weekends were my primary thing uh i filled in all the time uh for paul and al for jen uh if you want to go way back for um everybody who's been there yeah i mean yeah, let's face it so were you there uh, when uh, rudy cheeks and carolyn fox were doing that i thing? was absolutely i'd go in after uh carolyn fox and there would be lipstick on the microphone <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, from, it's a god's honest truth from rudy right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's the truth it really is cool that's cool as a matter of fact in uh, one of these it's i have it uh, somewhere digitally i had to fill in for carolyn going way back she was doing i think afternoons at the time with rudy and it was a last minute thing and i filled in and uh my boss bill weston came in and said oh by the way you're going to interview adam sandler <laughs> wow. i went what <laughs> okay fortunately he was a great guy and uh an easy interview that had to be early in his career right well it was yeah it was right past i can't remember if he was still with saturday night live he was gonna he was doing a show at uri and he was also promoting happy gilmore 
Oh, okay. So, so uh, yeah, so that was a while ago. Great guy, though. Really great guy. That dovetails nicely into what I was going to ask you. Okay. I know you've had some great interviews. You've met some big names in rock. Anyone's come to mind? A few. Let's see. Uh, Steve Piercy was interesting. Uh, Peter Frampton. Did I? I think. Did I? I didn't. You told that. me off the air, but let's spill oh, the beans. Oh, Peter yeah. Frampton. Oh, okay. Well, all right. So that this can get long, and I'll keep it short for you. So I had to interview Peter Frampton. He was playing at the Strand. Uh, I can't remember the year. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so this is Peter Frampton, right? I've <laughs> <laughs> said. So, yeah. No, I so, it was by early 2000s, wasn't it? Uh, no, this was like, boy, I want to say 90, mid 90s. Okay. He was promoting his uh, Frampton Comes Alive 2. Oh, all right. Yeah. Which yeah. was the anniversary album. Yeah. So long story short, um, I'm waiting and I, I had a day or two to prep, you know, but I had learned a secret, a secret about interviewing. Even though you're a fanboy and you're kind of like peeing your diaper when they come in, <laughs> if you talk about music, they just love you. Mm -hmm. And so b me being a musician, that was kind of easy. Anyway, he came in and his, his uh, manager came up to me and said, uh, you know, Mr. Frampton will be here very shortly. You'll have 10 minutes. You will talk about this. You will talk about that. And that is all. Okay, right? Mm. So, so Peter Frampton comes in. Now, Really, it was because of him that it went so well. He's just an unbelievably great guy. He's just a tremendous guy. So he ended up in the studio for over an hour. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about everything you can possibly think of, everything under the sun, to make a pun on one of his songs. Yeah. And uh, he was just great. So then at the end of the interview, uh, and he signed everything I shoved at him, played some guitar for me. We had a guitar on the wall. And then at the end of it, he said... Uh, so you're going to the show, right? I said, ah, to be honest with you, I didn't know about this until yesterday. So no, I don't have, I don't have any tickets. He goes, oh, you don't need tickets. He's just, just show up at whatever time, six o'clock at the uh, side door. Okay. All right. So I showed up at six o'clock at the side door. Yep. My name was there. They were waiting for me. I go in and I'm, I'm walking around and his, uh, his stage manager who just passed away. He was a really nice guy. I feel bad almost telling this story, but so he, he takes me up on the stage and he's in there. There's Peter Frampton's famous microphone, you know, with the talkbacks tube, talkback tube. Um, and then a second microphone for singing. In. So this, the manager said to me, he goes, okay, you will not talk into this microphone, meaning the one with the tube. Hmm. You will talk into that microphone. You will say this, that, and the other thing, right? And I get it. It's rock and roll. I totally get it, right? So he hadn't even finished yet. And Peter Frampton walked from up to us from behind, puts his left arm around me and his right arm around this, this manager and said, right, his name is Peter and my name is Peter. So Peter can talk on any microphone he wants and can say anything he wants. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. No. So, so the manager just looked at me, looked at him and sort of bowed and walked away. <laughs> oh my goodness. I felt like, I felt like a king. It was that unbelievable. Awesome. Yeah. I, I'll tell you something. I've heard the story a thousand times from people that have met him, guys I know who have opened up for him. Um, he's just, he's, he's a great guy. And, longevity is not always just about how good your career is or how good how many records you sell oh yeah it's a lot more than that and yeah. you can just tell he's been just a, a great great person well he was for me I yeah can, i can attest to that he, he was just great he, he just made me feel really really special as we like to say <laughs> boy would i love to have him on the show <laughs> oh yeah you should try i've been mm -hmm. We're working on it. We're well, working you know, on it. I, I hear things. I know a guy. 
I know a guy. <laughs> now, what's this? Uh, I heard something. You had a little another brush with greatness. Oh, man. So a band I was playing with. I'm going to forget names. Don't don't mind me. I'm sorry. Make them up like but, I do. <laughs> so uh, this was, oh, God, the late 70s. And I was playing a club up in Vermont in uh, where the heck were we? Well, Burlington, uh, because that's where UVM is. So I played a club up there and it's during the break and this this large burly man comes up uh, to me and says, hi, I'm the road manager for Jesse Colin Young. The band is here in the club and they'd like to sit in. And I'm like, sure you are, pal. <laughs> right. And he said, no, really. And I'm like, sure you are. And so then the band walks up. Now, I still don't kind of recognize anybody, you know. Mm. And we start to chat, and and I'm thinking, well, okay, well, these guys know what they're talking about, even if they're not really who they say they are. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it turned out to be the keyboard player. For, they had all played at uh, Woodstock except for one of them. The key, it was the keyboard player for Janis Joplin, uh, Big Brother, the holding company. It was Dewey, the drummer with um, Country Joe, right, mm, at uh, yeah. Woodstock. And on bass was Peter Walsh, who had uh, has a resume a mile long, including playing with C-Train. Well, those guys went up on stage, and, and I'll never forget this. Our equipment sounded better than I had ever heard it in my whole mm, life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So... And they were talk, talk about great guys. Holy mackerel. They were just the greatest guys. They were playing with Jesse Colin Young at UVM and they had a night off. Yeah. And then uh, they hung out. They they jammed like for a whole set. And then we partied with them later on after the show. And uh, and they said, oh, we're going to be playing. They, you know, we told them where we're from. Said, uh, you know, we're playing in Providence uh, whenever it was, like in a couple of weeks. I think it was still the Lowe's back then, the PPAC, you know. Yeah. And so it was, you know, one of those things. Yeah, just go to the side door. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> we're sure. Okay. So the um, myself and a bunch of us in the band go to the show, go to the side door. Sure enough, <laughs> there they are. And we watch the whole show from the wings it was awesome it was just great that is very cool that's very yeah cool. yeah so you know you, you'd be surprised um i hate to say this but i find that the bigger the stars are the nicer they are and um conversely i was gonna say here comes the obvious question then. yeah <laughs> who was the biggest pain in the balls that you ever had an interview if you don't oh, like naming names you don't have to really but. i don't i really don't want to but let's just say um it was a lead singer of a band that had a huge song. Great song. Love it. It's part of a commercial right now, actually. <laughs> the, the band <laughs> was... say that name. No, I don't want to. What's the name of the song? Uh, the song might be Round and Round. And, uh, okay. And you might have already said his name earlier on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was kind of... And yeah. then uh, I interviewed... There was a band called Firehouse. Wait, 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 wait. Just tell me why he was... What was the problem with said um, singer? He um, attitude. He, he was yeah. He was like an angry guy, to be honest with you. And he was there. Was I think they were in the middle of like a comeback, and there was animosity between him and the guitar player. And I just couldn't keep him reined in. Yeah, it was. It was just. It was not fun. No. But, uh, yeah. It was fine. You know, things work out. But I, I, I rather remember the good ones. You know, I had lunch with Brad Whitford came by the radio station and had lunch with a bunch of us. I heard and he's so, a great guy. 
Oh, he was great. So oh, I'll never forget this. So so we're sitting here in the jock studio, the jock lounge. Mm. My boss is at the head of the table and there's a bunch of us, you know, and, and my boss is going around and he's introducing each one of us, right? One by one. And I'm sitting right next to Brad Whitford. So he goes around, he gets to me. And my boss said, and this is Pete Silva. And at the time I was doing a show called The Hangover Cafe, which was like classics and things like that, you know. So he said, and this is Pete Silva. And Brad Whitford jumped right in and said, oh, my God, you, you do The Hangover Cafe. I love that show. Oh, how cool is that? And, and then it occurred to me, the guy lives like within, you know, radio yeah. distance. He yeah. listens on the radio. You know what I mean? Isn't that cool? It was awesome. It really was. As David Letterman would say, my brush with fame. That's right. <laughs> All right. But anyway. All right, Pete, picture it now. Ready? Yep. It's June 1972. Can you say it like Rod Serling? <laughs> <laughs> if we, what was that tagline you say? Oh, I forgot. No, consider I didn't for your it. consideration. Or something oh, yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. For your consideration. Right. Yeah. It's June 1972. I'm 16 months old, most likely wearing an adorable sailor suit onesie with a pair of foam-fitting pampers. <laughs> How old are you then? Oh, God. Let's see. What did you say? 71? 71, 72. I was born in 71. 70, so. Uh, so that would have made me in the 13, 14 range around there. So you remember when the Beatles broke up and... So oh, remember, I'm still out. not over it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I I walked into I was in seventh grade when that happened, and I walked into class like 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 somebody close to me had just died, and right. and and everyone was just like screaming and doing the usual junior high kind of stuff, and I'm walking around like a zombie, not understanding like what's wrong with you people. <laughs> but at that time, McCartney's got Ram, and I think Wildlife. No. The wildlife? Yeah, so so uh, Wings Wildlife was before Ram. Or was it? Wait a minute. No, no, I, no, I think wrong Wildlife came first. No, I you're mean, right. No, I think Ram came first. The Ram came first, then Wings. Yeah, right. you're right. All in that right. 71, 72 That's period, right. John had Imagine, and then yep. the, the follow-up, little record called Sometime in New York City, yes. backed up by Elephant's Memory. That's right. Do you remember that album? I certainly remember that album. That was an edgy, scary album, mm -hmm. <laughs> even by John Lennon standards. And I was already in junior high. I got suspended for wearing a black armband on my denim jacket with a peace sign on it. Because really? I saw I saw John Lennon wearing one like that on a on a army jacket. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How times have changed, huh? They certainly have. But of course, I remember that album. Yep, absolutely. And a very controversial single off that album is the following. Is the nigga of the world Yes, you do Think about Woman is the nigga of the world Think about it Do something about it We make a paint of faces dance Be a slave and say that she don't love If she's real, we say she's trying to be a man While putting her down, we pretend that she's above us Woman is the nigger of the world 
Today's guest is one of only a handful of musicians who can say they played bass guitar with John Lennon. As a member of the New York-based Elephant's Memory, he recorded and performed live with the ex-Beatle and his wife, Yoko Ono, at several now-historic appearances. He later went on to play with Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, and today he passes on his passion for music by teaching and has written a best-selling instructional book, Shortcuts to Improving Your Bass Playing. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Gary Bansayak. Hello, Gary. Hey, Don. How you doing? Pretty it's good. It's only rock and roll, baby. But I like it. <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm glad you like the Lennon stuff that I played on. Thanks for putting up Woman is the 
boop of the world. I know. John was ahead of his time on so many things. Oh, my gosh. And Yoko. Yeah, um, Yoko came up with all the lyrics for that, really. And, and so many other things behind the scenes that Yoko was really responsible for. And John kind of sometimes told me he felt a little guilty about it because they were always on her so bad, you know. And he was in a predicament that he didn't want to forsake his career that he was trying to promote as a single artist. So she kind of got lost in the weeds here and there. Tis true. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to know your earliest memories of rock and roll. What got you started? Oh, well, it was very easy with me. I was born in 1946. Everybody can do the math. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elvis Presley was it for me. When I when I saw Elvis Presley, I just totally lost it. I was too old to have a babysitter. My mother was very possessive of uh, people that came around, I guess. So I would pantomime Elvis records, and I would cut out black sideburns and scotch tape them to the side of my head. Uh, that's how much I got uh, cut off on Elvis. And that continued, and... Uh, you know, when I got in high school, I had a band director that was a bass player. So he took me under his wing. And you grew up in Pittsburgh. Was radio- Pittsburgh area, yeah. yeah. Uh, Waynesburg is the name of the town. It's about okay. 50 miles south of Pittsburgh. But I consider myself a, a Pittsburgher. Especially when I got into the Hall of Fame in Pittsburgh. Oh. I got to take credit well, for go. the Pittsburgh Hall of Fame. That's right. You can't deny your <laughs> Pittsburgh roots now. Yeah. And how about the, the local radio at the time? Was there any DJs around it? Oh, that was what it was all about from my young high school bands and stuff. We were a lot of soul music in Pittsburgh. There was a particular disc jockey called Porky Chedwick on a station called WAMO. He actually put my record, I had a band in uh, in my freshman year in college that did a single called The Fife Piper, and we ended up being on Hanna-Barbera Records, the Flintstone label. And that was the Dynatones, am I right? Yeah, yes. and it, was a, it was a big hit in Top 40. It's a great way to get started with a hit record when you're 19. And that wasn't your only foray into recording. I guess in 1970, you had a band that I've been listening to, actually, Pig Iron. Oh, I loved Pig Iron. It was an English guy, Alan Abrams, came over and started wanted to start a real American Roots kind of bluesy. You know, the the horn bands were big then, you know, like uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I was going to say, it sounds like that Al Cooper era, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were actually on Columbia Records Uh and uh, got signed by Columbia, and that uh, that was a pretty big selling record. It also got the best album cover of 1969. So notice the cover is like the East meets West, the the trains, and they superimposed everybody uh, in the band on one of the locomotives. It was very cool, catchy for 69. Sure. In those days, they gave out awards for album covers. That's like a joke now, you know. Nobody even knows what an album cover is. Right. 
Now, why did that band? Did it split up? Did you leave them? What ended up happening? Yeah, with that? I I was kind of like the leader of the band because the drummer and the leader that got that project together, as I said, was from England, and uh, we we just really had a lot of problems with him. And I decided, you know what? I'll take everybody in the band and just we'll just continue without him. Right. So I guess that was my initiative that I, I took to do that, and it was a flop. We were dead in six months. Nobody wanted to pick us up, and so that was the end of that and i moved on to another gig with an atlantic band called mr flood's party and who was notable in mr flood's party Huey McCracken, if you know who Huey McCracken is. That's how I first met Huey and did a lot of sessions with him. And uh, he was just a wonderful player. And uh, I just couldn't believe it when he told me that he turned down the Paul McCartney gig. It was like a shock to me. (laughs) Little did I know then that it was uh, only a, a little time later I'd be working with John. I know. Now, this confused me a little bit because Elephant's Memory as a unit was already in existence. They had done songs for the Midnight Cowboy album. Now that You yeah, were not you, part of that. Thanks for doing your homework, man. Sure. I appreciate it. Well, I know you were uh, not part of that, right? That was way back. And, and I'm talking, they started the band almost like in 1965, 66. So they'd been a while, uh, been together a while before I even got the nod to be in the band. So they, they had a cattle call in the Village Voice, uh, which uh, for those listeners, Listeners that don't know, it was like a, a newspaper in the village and back in the day, and uh, uh, they would put in ads, and musicians would answer the ads and show up for a cattle call, and you'd go up against God knows how many people. I think I, I think almost seventy bass players showed up for the gig, you know. Wow. But I think they had been checking me out before because I was doing a lot of studio work and stuff. So I think, you know, even though we went through the motions of the cattle call, I think they had a pretty good idea that that I might be a finalist starting out because of my experience with the band you just mentioned, Pig Iron. So you guys were New York, a lot of activism, obviously that time and I, I know you don't like being labeled a street band because i don't even know what a street band puts me in the mind of like someone busking on the corner for dimes or something yeah you, you hit it on the head everybody would because john did david peel who was a that's the definition of a street band right david peel literally played on the street busking uh with a few sidemen i think that's why they lump us in with the david peel concept mm-hmm. you know because they didn't know how to explain us where we our origins were it wouldn't have been too hard to do it they, you know like you said we had a gold album for midnight cowboy and, and a couple of hit singles even before we met john so right. but somehow that rubbed off i don't know why but we were really studio players i was doing pig iron and uh, all the other guys elephant's memory and since 65 it had one record deal after another they were on buddha for a while they were on metromedia records and before we even knew about apple being interested in john and now the question you're probably so sick of being asked how did you guys come to the attention of john and yoko it's a story i've told a million times i never get tired of telling it we did a live show don out on long island at a place called WLIR. I think the station is still there, uh, but it might be a country now or something. But anyway, they used to do live broadcasts where you went into the station and actually play in a studio room, Mm -hmm. and they would tape it and then air it then or later or whatever they decided to do. So we made this tape. We did a half an hour show, maybe 40 minutes tops with the encore. I remember Billy Joel was the opening act, and nobody in the band knew even knew who he was. Wow. 
even though I had auditioned for him about a year previously when he was in a band called The Vagrants. And uh, we did that show, and somebody slipped the tape of it to the activist Jerry Rubin, mm-hmm. who John was friending and hanging out a little bit with in 1971. So uh, that's how John and Yoko heard us, with that tape initially. And we didn't think anything about it. We said, boy, that'd be nice. You know, we'd like to maybe play with him or something out of that or whatever. And uh, I would see him during the day when I went to my rehearsals down in the village. John and Yoko were living on a street called Bank Street, which is just down the block from us, where we rehearsed at a studio called Magna Graphics. And I would see John almost every day going to rehearsal. They'd be at the deli, the Korean deli down the street or whatever, or just, you know, running around. But you didn't really run up to people in those days and say, hey, you're John Lennon. Right, right. You know, so the one night to speed up the story, we, uh, we were rehearsing at Magna Graphics and the roadies came in and said, uh, John and Yoko are out in the lobby and they want to play with you guys. And we thought they were kidding. And again, to speed it up, we left them waiting out there for a long time. And then finally they came in and it was true. We just about had a heart attack when we saw them in that white suit from Abbey Road, basically, is what it looked like to me. Yeah. It was just so striking to see them yeah, yeah. dressed like that for the first time we met them. And we played all night. That was about 11 o'clock at night. And we played till like 5 in the morning. And John and Yoko, you know, pipe up. Uh, hey, we'd, we'd really like to join your band. And, you know, we looked at each other and went, how in the hell is that going to work? <laughs> and uh, so after more discussion, you know, we got real and decided on a merger. And Yoko spoke up and said, wait a minute, Plastic Ono and Elephant's Memory spells poem. You know how she is Very Yoko. with all yes. that catchy stuff. Yeah. So. She was already working on the marketing idea for the band, you know, in, in only a few hours. So so we agreed, and uh, we had to do a little finagling to get out of our contract with Intermedia Records at the time, but that was a dead issue anyway. So John said, would you like to be on Apple? And, and, and we knew that that was going to be a disaster because at the time, you know, they were practically falling apart. Of then. They were fighting over money right. and Alan Klein and this and that. So, but what could we do? You know, I mean, when a Beatle asked you to be on their label, I mean, I knew that even James Taylor had flopped on Apple. I mean, right. You know, I mean, it wasn't a good idea. I didn't know Joey Mullen from Badfinger then, but I've later played with him and we've had a lot of great talks and laughs about Apple and this and that. As a matter of fact, Joey and I both appeared in a, in a documentary uh, on Apple Records called Strange Fruit, if anybody wants to pick that up. And uh, when I heard how Joey was going on and off about uh, Apple, I didn't feel too bad about ragging on him a little bit right. because we just really didn't get any promotion at all. I remember the day we went up to Apple Records, 1500 Broadway, and went up to the penthouse and was looking around in Apple, and Adam Ippolito, uh, the keyboard player in Elephants, we said, let's go find the promotion department. So we're running around from door to door, you know, back these long halls, and so we got, (laughs) after about 20 minutes, we realized Apple didn't have a promotion department. How can that be? (laughs) They just put out a record, and we went gold and platinum. That's all they had to do. (laughs) So that was a disappointment. So they did nothing for us in that regard in promoting our first record, which John produced.
What's the chronology there? Did you do Sometime in New York City first? Yes. Okay. Uh, we did the Mike Douglas show down in Philadelphia. Was That didn't end up being a record. Well, actually, it is a record. It's a DVD. It's a DVD. That's right. Yeah. Well, well, before we get to that, that yeah. first night you guys jammed, how did it work out? Was he saying, let's do a such and such song, a Chuck Berry tune? Do you remember any specific Yeah, it was subtle. You know, we, we it was nothing like preordained or anything. It's just we just went from this to that, and then somebody start this or mention something and he'd be going right into Dizzy Miss Lizzie or something you know what I mean and we did all the Chuck Berry tunes he loved and Elvis a lot of Elvis yeah uh, we actually did Elvis at the garden uh, but anyway uh, yeah it was just kind of spontaneous and we played for hours I mean our fingers were tired and we played for hours every day I mean he just we'd already been playing two or three hours before he got there so it was a real workout uh, he hadn't been playing and right. at first we wondered is he gonna be able to cut it you know yeah but he was a little rusty for the first 20 minutes but after that he really just like took off he was really digging it now right, that's just what I was gonna ask time. what was yeah, your initial impression of him as a guitar player well, a, a little singer? shaky like I said at first yeah, to play yeah. after he got such a rhythm player yeah. I mean it's just wow you could just it was just there you could just build around it it was like the groove was you know if we didn't have a groove already here's something else you can grab onto and really hang your hat you right know, he really laid it down so you did the tv show first mike douglas right. oh. yeah, we'd only been rehearsing with them like a week or 10 days and, oh i didn't know uh, we got the call yeah. to do that we were shitting in our pants i bet i mean national tv <laughs> could we have a couple more rehearsals please you guys did it five it was a couple of days you won a couple of episodes know. Whole week, oh, five right, days. Right, right. Yeah, and I know crazy. TV sound is terrible. I mean, they don't set you up as good as if you were doing a, a live concert. You were lucky if you had an SM57 on the bass, you know? Really? <laughs> oh, my like... God. <laughs> so that's a it struggle was... right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It wasn't too good back in those days, but we had to make the best of it. That's what it was then. You know, I think and laugh about it now, but then that was what they had, you know. This may be a little bit off base, but, you know, Roger Ailes was actually the producer of that show. Right, right. There's a side note. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> And I had read somewhere, and I don't know if this is just nonsense, but there was some, when Bobby Seale was on, there was some problem backstage because he had a gun on him, and there was some... Well, he had a little entourage with him. Okay. It wasn't him. It was a couple guys that were with him. They were just hired bodyguards, you know, like John would hire later on when we would be at the record plant. He had a couple of guys he hired that were ex-New York City police cops that hung out with us, great guys, and... They'd be packing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and then later on, it was a secret service we had to deal with because uh, Jackie Kennedy Onassis showed up. He had a bunch of guys with her, too. So that was just like par for the course back then. It was crazy. Now, was that just during a session, just interrupting? Yeah, just uh, one quick call. You know, John, I could tell by the look on John's face, he was not happy. Not that he was not happy to meet her, but we were really heavy in the middle of something. 
We had trouble with Phil Spector. He was there the first couple of nights. And uh, this is sometime in New York City I'm talking about now. Right. For just to clarify. Sure. After Mike Douglas, we went in to do the sometime in New York City record. And the first couple of nights, Phil was producing. And, you know, he would do the thing about put the silver-handed revolver on the on the, mm-hmm. the board with the bag of cocaine. and. Mm-hmm craziness and uh, john would come up with all kinds of crazy stuff to get phil crazy basically so he could get him out of there he was just not digging on him at all so finally phil didn't dig us he didn't like working with us he was very out of sorts because it wasn't eric and george harrison and the normal crew klaus and this and that so he really gave us the look down your nose and uh that was fine with me because he was a jerk as far as i was concerned (laughs) and we couldn't we couldn't wait to get rid of him the murderer yeah i know i know (laughs) now were you going direct inject or were you mike in the amp how were you recording yeah that roy sakala at the at the record plant would do both and they did a mix of the two direct signal and the and the mic bass and i loved it it was so warm i would do that till this day you know anybody was set up for it or could understand it why (laughs) i remember i heard uh, john had given him some direction they didn't want to sound like a beach boys record too clean hated anything that was clean you know he would just dirty things up just to dirty it up he really hated that really clean thing so right. it's been well documented that he, he wouldn't even do his vocals unless he had slapback on it he, he liked to play with it he got had gotten used to it years before and he really dug working that way so sure. he wouldn't do any vocals unless it had echo or something going on slap or whatever right so uh, but that was cool I want to get into the one-to-one concept, but I got, I got a question. When Live in New York City um, came out on videotape many, many, many moons ago. VHS. VHS, yeah. There was another bass player there mm-hmm. in a white robe. Yeah, lovely guy. Uh, Who was it? How was he connected to Elephant's Oh, I'm glad to explain it to you. I, I, that was John Ward, and he was from up in New England somewhere, around Maine or something like that. And he was the Elephant's Memories bass player for all those years previous to when I joined the band. Okay. And he had left the band only like eight months before I joined. So he was still up at a commune or something up in uh, New England somewhere. And what happened is, uh, John, when we were rehearsing at the Fillmore East for the one-to-one show, they had two keyboard players, our keyboard player, Adam Ippolito and Yoko, and Tex Gabriel, our guitar player, and John on guitar, and... Two drummers, mm-hmm. because John wanted to use Jim Keltner from mm-hmm. the Plastic Ono Band. He, that was the only player he wanted to retain mm-hmm. from that band or yeah. those sessions. And our drummer, Rick Frank. So basically, there were two of everything except me. <laughs> so he got the bright idea. He comes to rehearsal one day, and he says, I'm going to ask Noel Redding to be the second bass player at the show. And my heart sank. I mean, it's, oh, shit. <laughs> Nobody in, in the press will ever mention me if Noel no Redding is on the gig, you know? Yeah. So that was not a good news to my ears. No, but no. It only lasted about a day. He didn't want to do it. He was too strung out or couldn't make it or whatever. I don't remember. But So they said, you know what? We'd love to ask John Ward. And I says, there you go. That makes sense. Because I had actually met him, and he was just such a sweetheart of a guy. And he was in this commune now and had been for a year or so up there. And that's why he had that, if you look at the 
tape that you're talking about, he's wearing this long white robe. And the girls at the commune had made that. They had all pitched in and made that, handmade that for him for the garden show. And I thought that was kind of cool. He barely moved a muscle. I mean, he's <laughs> yeah. just... They didn't end up taking him in a lot of the recordings, even though he's... You're seeing him. Yeah, You're not yeah. really hearing him much because John Lennon had bought me an old 52 Telecaster bass. Uh, he went out and bought all kinds of instruments for everybody and a Hammond organ for our keyboard player and this and that. Yeah. But he bought me an old 52 Tele. The only problem with the 52 Tele was it had this incredible, horrendous buzz to it. Ooh. So they ended up with that buzz a little bit, and I don't think – if he's in the mixes here and there, he's it's not much, you yeah, know, yeah. because we doubled most of the stuff. And, and I actually wrote out a couple of things for him, an octave higher than me, that was barely audible in the final mixes. I'm hoping when they finally do that again, I think they will eventually. Jack Douglas, I saw at the screening of the movie, that the Lennon movie – Lennon NYC, are yeah. you familiar with oh, that? Oh, many yeah. times, yeah. Okay. So when they had the opening of that in Central Park, Jack Douglas told me he had spoken with Yoko, and she's finally ready to do the one-to-one -one concert again and remaster and remix the whole thing. And do the nighttime show, too. So that yeah, was, that was the, most exactly. Of that's the afternoon. Two shows, 25,000 yeah. people. Right. Uh, 25,000 people done with tambourines, if you can imagine what oh, that's like. Oh, that must have been... <laughs> And only half of them with rhythm. So that, exactly. Right? <laughs> All the ones with no rhythm were in the front row, as there far as I was concerned. Yeah. It was a little distracting, but okay. we were so loud, it really didn't make any difference. That, yeah, they say it's one of the loudest concerts ever. I mean, it was just mind-blowingly loud.
heard everything that was done at the concert? Yeah, pretty much. Sean uh, had a little bit of a cold, so... And plus, you know, he had to gear himself for two performances. He knew he really couldn't play for hours, you know, so... Uh, yeah, that was pretty much the same lineup of songs in the in the yeah. afternoon and the evening. Okay. And they, you kind of have to look real... I have to look sometimes real close at clips here and there to see what shirt I had on. Because <laughs> I, I changed shirts. Had the same uh, satin suit that I had yep. handmade for him. He, he footed the bill for that. It was pretty nice of him. And he, he gave everybody like five, six, seven hundred dollars to buy new clothes for the show and this cool. and that. And that was a lot of money in those days. Oh, yeah. I understand the relationship between Elephant's Memory and, and John and Yoko came to an end kind of unceremoniously with a letter, I believe. Yeah, but well, that's after the fact. I was I appreciated the fact that he was nice enough to send us a letter because he really needed to clear things up because he had bought us almost a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment to do a live tour. Mm. So uh, he footed the bill for that, or Apple did. They weren't happy about it. Mm. Plus, we were on retainer of a thousand dollars a week for years. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Hard to take. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So anyway, he really didn't dig that the thing about playing out as much as he wanted to do the world tour. So the reason that didn't happen is he didn't have a green card. I guess you've seen that in the movie Plus. or whatever. Right. So it was all about the green card. But the reason he sent us the letter was about the equipment. But the reason I think the gist of your question is, why did we part ways? And that had nothing to do with Elephant's memory. That was because of him and Yoko splitting up. John had some serious transgression. And <laughs> the best way I can put it, yeah, and uh, got nailed, and she kicked him out of the house. So before I knew it, he was calling me from LA. You know, it's like, what the hell are you doing out there? <laughs> <laughs> and why isn't Yoko with you? Right. You know, so it was a beautiful letter just uh, to clear up. I don't know what to tell you to do about the equipment. You can't keep a good band down. You guys can't expect to know what you're doing because I never knew what I was doing. Mm. And, and the green card mess and the whole thing. So it's just a beautiful letter and That's parting cool. of the ways. And it's history then, you know, you got that crazy thing uh, going on in L.A., you know. Right. So. What do you think the biggest misconception is publicly of John and Lennon and Yoko Ono? Oh, definitely Yoko. She was such a driving force creatively and... You know, personally, you know, I just loved her. I loved playing on her double record. It was, I think, Elephant's Memory was shown on that album more than we did playing with John. Of course, John was producing at the time, but, right. but still, I just love her double album, Approximately Infinite Universe. I mean, nothing against the live record and the yeah. Sometime in New York City record or our Apple record, all of which he produced, but just working with her was just, uh, you know, it was just exciting and of course, he was right there beside her at the time, but but it was. I think that's people just don't realize. You know, she wrote the lyrics for Imagine, basically. Right. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that's coming out now that I've been saying for years. Mm -hmm. you know? I don't even know whether she's still got her due yet. You know, no, maybe never will. No. And it was disappointing. You know, when I would be in England and several times, and you know, people still hate her there. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. It's too bad. It really is. She's um, She certainly paid a high price for her. She really did. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. Speaking of which, what are your memories of that night, December 8th, 1980? Oh, my goodness. Uh, 
I've uh, told this story in many, many interviews. Uh, it couldn't be more poignant to me because I was actually on the scene when John was killed. I was going to a jazz club at 11 o'clock. I had reservations for a club right across the street from the Dakota. It was called Paulson's. And a friend of mine picked me up on my East 84th Street apartment, and we did the cross street through the park which comes out right at the Dakota. So we come out of the park, stop at the stop sign, and there was a police car pulling away from the Dakota. And somehow, I don't know, I just got the vibe, man. I, I don't know, that sounds corny, but I just got the vibe. I said, oh my God, I hope nothing's happened to John. And by the time we parked the car at a meter and walked in the front door of the club, already all of the waitresses in the club were running around hysterically screaming and crying that John had been shot. Mm -hmm. So that's how I found out. And I, I swear it was only, but within 20 minutes, there were 300 people on the street already. Sure. We were lucky to be able to get a sense about us and get back outside and get our car out of the parking spot and get back over to my east side apartment because it was just, you know, by the time we were pulling out, there were probably five, 600 people. It was just reverberating through the streets of Manhattan. It was just unbelievable. And, of course, you know, that's history. You know, you've seen the, the, the shots of what it ended up being, you yeah, know, yeah, thousands yeah. of people. And we went home and uh, saw the all the stuff that everybody saw on Monday Night Football, like everybody else, you right. know, at my apartment. It was just what a night. I know. You know? Yeah. But, but to be there on the scene, uh, obviously, is something I'll never forget. And I think of it every year. I bet. And obviously, life went on for you as a musician post-working with John and Yoko, and you did some work with Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. Yeah, right after that, we toured, uh, how, how great is that, you know? through uh, We did this one concert with John, and John was at the concert, I'm trying to say, that right. we did of Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley at the Anderson Theater. Mm -hmm. We wrote a little song on our album about that, and uh, and they end up, uh, you know, Chuck, uh, from being on the Mike Douglas show, loved us when he met us, and uh, we got the call from Chess to go out and be his touring band, so we did quite a, quite a few dates. And I think we're the only live band, per se, that was asked to do a record with him, with Chess. Uh, there's a record on Chess called Bio by Chuck Berry. I don't think he's ever had a whole band come in and back him up. You know, it's usually just been studio players or whatever. And, of course, on the road, he just did pickup bands. But oh. we, we loved playing with him, you know, and uh, and... And Bo Diddley as well. He was just an amazing guy. They were quite the duo to have on the same show. You know, they would compliment each other in many ways and sometimes do a few songs together at the end of the night with elephants. And uh, it, it was really a lot of fun. Yeah, it's very cool. And did I hear you were the house band for Atlantic Records for a time? And worked yeah, with I was in the house band at Atlantic for mm. like the year before I was with Elephants. And the whole year, the first year I worked with John, I was still doing all that stuff. My friend Jerry Ragavoy was oh. the owner of the Hit Factory. He wrote my favorite song, oh, Stay With Me by Larry oh Nelson. God. Oh, he's, what a song. You know, he wrote Time Is On My Side, right? Really? No, I, that, I, I didn't know that. I know he wrote Peace yeah. of My Heart, but I didn't know that. <laughs> he wrote Time Is On My Side, and because he was with, I think he was, I may have it backwards, excuse me if I do, but I think he was signed with ASCAP, and there was some 
thing where he couldn't do it with BMI, so he had to use another name for the writing in that song. That was common back then. Yeah. They would just take on another name right. and write something. So, yeah, you won't find Jerry's name on the record, but he wrote Time Is On My Side. How heavy original. is that? I love that know? original version, too. That, oh, my God. <laughs> you've been more than generous with your time, and I want to thank you. I enjoy it, Don. We, maybe we can do it again sometime. Um, Real quick, you want to plug anything? Sure. Well, I have a record that's on my website www.garyvanzaya.com and it's called Pop Goes the Elephant I uh, had a lot of old tracks that I wanted to put out I wrote a song for my wife for our anniversary called Eva Mm-hmm. and uh, put that on there. But one of the nice things that's on there is that I had a track of the original Elephant's Memory playing an instrumental version of Imagine just a couple of weeks after John was killed. So that's on there, and that's never been released. It's on my record. So you, as I said, you can get that on the www.garyvansock.com.
Elephant's Memory Band with Gary Van. I can't get that name. Sayak. I always Sayoc. say it wrong. Gary Van Sayak, bass player. Oh, not bad, huh? He was very hirsute in those days. Oh? You know what that word means? Harry. Harry. <laughs> I went to the seventh grade. I had my vocabulary list. So, Peter. Yes. Did you see any good concerts back in the day? And I'm guessing the answer is going to be yes. Is that rhetorical? Of course mm. I saw great concerts. Yeah. Ba back in those days, like in the 70s? Well, figure, when did you start going? 16, 15, around there? Uh, my my first, I'm I'm proud of my age. My first concert is uh, was see Chicago at the Rhode Island Auditorium oh. in August. Uh, it was August 13th, 1971. Nice era for that band. So there you go. $3.50 for 7th Row Center. Oh, my God. <laughs> was yep. there an opener? You know, there wasn't. I just remembered they came out and tuned up. <laughs> they always did that even on their live album you hear yeah like, they, right. they just they tuned up and it was, seemed like it went on forever you know uh and then they started playing <laughs> i think they had chicago three out by then right they were working on three that, oh. that was i think i think it was very close to coming out but they played chicago two which is a desert island album for me mm -hmm. in its entirety it really I, it's entirely that's yep. awesome yeah and they they played the 13th and the 14th and after the it might have been on the the morning of the 15th they played a free concert a surprise concert in washington park in providence at a junior high school playground i missed that though wow that's, yeah that's what's missing today you don't see that sort of spontaneity in terms of bands just coming to town doing a one-off yeah, well, you know, there was a lot of, as now, but there was an awful lot of racial tension back then. Yeah. And uh, Chicago, a lot of people don't realize Chicago was a really edgy, you know, they, they've they been called jazz rock. I, I consider them progressive. Progressive. They were very, very edgy and very political and very socially conscious. So for them to do that was, was right in their wheelhouse, you know. And that's something that growing up in the 80s, I did not realize that until that was brought to my attention. Yeah. We had a very cool teacher's assistant in the high school that I went to. And he turned us on to Chicago 2 and, and CTA, first album. And and at first, I you know I kind of recoiled. I'm like, what? Uh, <laughs> hard to really say I'm sorry? He's like, no, no, no. Forget everything you think you know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and just listen to these records. And, and from then on, they're like, I, I, those early albums are great. See, you need to make one of those, um, you know, those popular viral videos right now on YouTube with someone's reaction hearing something the first time. You ever see those? I have seen those, yes. <laughs> yes. A six-year-old girl reacts to Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Somebody sent me a link. I have a, well, I shouldn't talk about it. I have a connection to Chicago. But anyway, the- uh, oh, don't, tell some, me, don't tell some, me that. Somebody <laughs> sent me a link to uh, 25 or 6 to 4. These two college guys, yeah. it's the funniest thing to watch. And they're both <laughs> like dude dude listen to that guitar solo dude <laughs> well that's the thing too i noticed all joking aside when you see some of these kids they they put a bunch of kids that look like they were into rap and hip-hop and they had them listen to don't let me down by the Beatles. oh and i'm thinking oh god here we go they're not good they were digging it they yeah were like, listen to those lyrics listen to that heart listen to the soul in his voice it's not yeah. that and this is i'm gonna get off on a tangent here i that's go right. 
It's <laughs> not that kids today don't like the music that we grew up with. They're just not exposed to it. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I agree. I, you know, I'm not sure we'd make converts out of them, but let's face it. Uh, that's just the cycle of the arts. I yeah. mean, you know, you, when you're growing up, firstly, you want to reject anything your parents like just because. Right. Um, and then eventually we sort of start to become our parents as we get older and then um and then we embrace certain things you know i, I mean i i've gone that cycle i love 40s music i just i love the whole decade and that's you know that's my parents decade right for example one of your brethren at hjy actually spoke to him the other day jim van oh yeah um, as far as I'm concerned, I went to school every Sunday and listened to the Rock and Roll Root Cellar. And That's right. Before that, it was I think it was uh, Sunday morning 60s. Yeah. And I learned about tracks like Deja Vu by uh, CSNY. And I, yeah. I wouldn't have heard that on pop radio at the time. Jim Van used to play Louie, 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 Louie. Remember oh, that one? That's right. <laughs> the stories. The stories. That's right. That's yeah. right. His show, uh, so when he left HJY, I took that show over and they renamed it the Hangover Cafe. Oh, that's why I don't like you. I knew I resented <laughs> you for some reason. That's I didn't, it. I didn't tell him to leave. <laughs> no, I, and yeah. uh, it was great because I could play just as he. I would show up with, uh, back in the day, we had vinyl. Mm -hmm. I'd, show up, I'd show up with uh, milk cartons filled with 45s and albums yeah, and yeah. stuff. And, oh, my God. So back to concerts. All right, Chicago. Yes. I, yes. I, I'll give you my first concert. And I've said okay. this on the air, so everyone's rolling their eyes collectively. <laughs> 1980. May, I was nine years old, front row center, Bob Dylan at the Ocean State. Get out of here. For the religious tour he did for um, for Slow yeah. Train Coming. Yep. And he did tracks from the next album, Saved, but it hadn't been released yet. So, I, you know, I was young. I knew it was special. I wanted to hear the Dylan songs I knew. Right. But. Ironically, a couple of shows into the tour after the one I saw, apparently people were walking out, so the promoters pretty much demanded he start doing some familiar songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, with Bob Dylan, he does the familiar songs, but you don't realize he's doing them. <laughs> well, I saw him again in, I think, 2001, and that was the case. He did yeah. one melody yeah, yeah. for every song. Yeah. The yeah. same melody. You know, the answer, my friend, is blown yeah. in the wind. Yeah. It ain't me, babe. No, 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 me, babe. Every song had that same cadence. Yeah. Last time I saw him, it was a while ago now. It was McCoy Stadium. And I remember turning to my, my buddy I was with, who's a Dylan fanatic. Mm. And he's looking at me going like, is that, what, what, is he doing, what, what's that one he's doing now? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, not really sure. I don't really know. <laughs> and he had a great band with him. He had uh, Charlie Sexton on guitar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first time I saw him when I was, when I was uh, eight or nine, he had Jim Keltner. He had uh, Tim Drummond, bass player from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yep. And uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Aretha Franklin's Wurlitzer player in the early oh, days. Oh, um, I know who you mean. Uh, Spooner Oldham? That Sp sound right? Is, is Spooner Oldham? I don't know. Let me Google it. Hang on. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yes. Spooner Oldham. Spooner Oldham. Yep. And yep. these okay. just these incredible musicians. I remember that tour. Wait a minute. Wouldn't you say that was? 1980. 80? Yeah. Okay. I remember that. And he was proselytizing yep. from the stage. I remember somebody got up to go to the bathroom. Go ahead, sinner. Leave if you can't handle the word of the Lord. Poor guy's just like, I'm just going to the bedroom, man. You know? But he was, yeah, he was in the, it was, it was interesting. I'm yeah. stunned that as a child, your first concert was Bob Dylan. I mean, that's, that's. Yeah. 
That's like saying my first sip of alcohol is Glenlivet. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, That's- I was a big Beatle fan and a big Dylan fan um, at that time. And again, we kind of bring it up with the interview with Gary. When John Lennon died, those memories are very, 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 I remember, put it that way. What, what do you remember about the night John died? Oh, my God. Shock. Stunning. Do you remember I mean, you I- were? Yeah, I was just hanging out with a friend. Um, we were watching. I don't think we were watching Monday Night Football. I don't. I don't remember to be honest with you. And uh, it was just late, and I was kind of I was just tired. And um, Doug White was on WJR, and they signed off. Mm. And I said, ah, I'm just gonna split, go home. And then they stayed on. I remember they stayed on because Patrice Wood, I think, was was with them even back then. The yeah, yeah. And they just said we have a late bulletin, a late flash. There's been a shooting um, near Central Park. I remember them saying um, they described it. A nurse on the scene said there is an awful lot of blood. And then they said it was reports are that it was John Lennon that was shot. And I was just I, I you I shock isn't even the word. And I stayed up all night long. Just back then you didn't have the 24 hour news things, no. the Internet and everything else. And so. Just had TV on constantly looking for anything at all I could find out, you know. Um, and I don't think, I can't remember if I knew he was dead yet until the morning. But uh, that was, that just, and I, again, you know, we talked about being a zombie earlier. I just, I was a zombie, just sure. a zombie sure. for, for weeks after that. It was stunning. And the funny thing about that was it was not a TV event as it would be now. You know, there was CNN, believe it or not. I didn't have it. Most people didn't have, you know. I don't even think we had cable in my neighborhood until 82. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, But it was a radio event for sure. Yes. I just remember every station. I think it was JB 105, which was a mm-hmm. rock station at the time. That's right. Yeah. And they were just like every song, every station for weeks. It, yeah. it seemed like, you know, for as anyone out there who doesn't remember as big a story as you can remember, yeah. double it. it I, was, just, I just very recently, uh, you know, I had a purging moment <laughs> and i just got rid of well i didn't throw them away i gave them away to a collector uh all my newspapers from uh, well the day after and yeah. then uh everything that came subsequent to that uh i collected anything i could any information i could get sure all. sure but I'll, I'll never forget that boy and I, I you know what i never forget the next day on um network news uh when they made the announcement the, the two beetle deaths I'll, I'll always forget the network news on when George Harrison passed away. Mm. Um, and we all knew he was, right. you know, he, he was, uh, wasn't the shock. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it was Brian Williams and they, it was NBC nightly news and it just opened up with all things must pass. There was no, um, you know, theme music or anything, just all things must pass. And then a picture of George Harrison. And then quietly they went to, I think it was Brian Williams who, who, who made the announcement. Yeah. And it was, just stunning, you know. Pete, talk to me about what you're doing now. What projects do you have in the works? And how can people well, hear it? Well, well, they can get on my uh, website at uh, PeteSilvaMusic.com. I also have a YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, Facebook. Friend me on Facebook. I'll, I'll friend almost anybody. Yeah, and, when's uh, that going to happen for me? Gee. Well, <laughs> I'm waiting for my check. Oh. The um, So thanks for asking. So I got, um, I, I write fast. I, I put stuff out there, whether or not anybody likes it. I don't know. But I wrote a Bossa Nova song. Uh, I wrote a, um, a tribute to Burt Bacharach. Oh, nice. Yep. What's that, that called? Sings. That's called I'll Be Waiting for You. Okay. It's, uh, you know, I did my homework on it. And, mm-hmm. uh, 
Um, There's a guy with a vast amount of songs. Huh? Oh, oh my, my goodness! God. Right? Don't even. <laughs> Don't go. Bacharach David, look out. <laughs> Baby, it's you. I mean, oh, I, 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 from that, yeah, I go, yeah. Uh, Burt Bacharach's got a great story about that, by the way. When the Beatles played uh, in '63, when they played the uh, in for the Queen in London, yeah, <laughs> he was there, oh. and, and John Lennon said, "Hey." You're the guy that wrote that song we play. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but anyway, so I've just released one uh, duet. It's a country song. It's, uh, you know, it's a wistful kind of summery, nostalgic thing. It's called While the Mandolins Played. It's a little ballad. Nice. Uh, yeah. So, um, so all I available little, online on online. YouTube. And, and you know what? I shouldn't say this because fellow musicians may hate me for it, but it's free. You know, what's not, you know, it's on Spotify and all the streaming services, Apple yeah. Music and everything. Uh, but if you want to download it, just go to my website and it's absolutely free to download. I have no pretensions. <laughs> if you like my music that much, you can have it. <laughs> so you sell out for the man. No. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I got that and I, I'm, I'm always writing. I just finished writing a song called Locket Made of Gold. It might touch a nerve or two, <laughs> okay. let's just say. Right. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a Heartland kind of song, which is in my wheelhouse typically. You know, um, I, I kind of like lean to as much as I love the Beatles and all these other things. When it comes down to me as a singer songwriter, I end up always in that kind of Mellencamp, Springsteen, Heartland mode. For sure. And you've got that voice for it, too, which is cool. Yeah, I think I do. OK, so um, real so Americana. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to thank Pete Silver for joining us again and Barry Van Syok. And I want to thank you guys for listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. It ain't fair, John Sinclair, in the step of breathing air. Won't you care for John Sinclair, in the step of breathing air? Let him be, set him free, let him be like you and me. They gave him ten for two, and what else can the judges do? We got, 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 Give him temper
the 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 the